If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a bunch of them, and most of them are free with Kindle Unlimited. Don't have Kindle Unlimited? No problem. They're all priced pretty cheap. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. I think my wife is possessed. I've been happily married to my wife Sylvia for seven years. She's the most wonderful, caring, thoughtful person that I've ever known. If I'm ever having a bad day, I feel better knowing that when I get home, I'll be greeted by Sylvia's smiling face and cheerful aura. I'm a lucky man. But lately, Sylvia has been acting unusual. The weirdest thing is that her odd behavior occurs after she has fallen asleep. It started with the mumbling. Sylvia had always been a sound sleeper. She's one of those people that when her head hits the pillow, she's out like a light and doesn't move until she wakes the following morning. So when she started mumbling in her sleep, it was an abnormal occurrence. The first night it happened, I told Sylvia about it the next morning. She did not remember doing it. She shrugged and we chuckled, but when it happened again the next night, and the next night after that, and the next night after that, I started getting a funny feeling about it. Again, this is a woman I had slept next to every night for seven years. She had previously never made a peep while sleeping. It may seem extreme, but I found this unsettling. The mumbling episodes were the same every night. I'd wake up to Sylvia lying on her side facing me. Her lips would be moving as though she was talking, but the only sounds coming out were indistinguishable mumbles. From there, things got progressively worse. One night, I opened my eyes in the middle of the night. I instinctively peered over at the clock. It was 3 o'clock a.m. When I turned my head, I was shocked to find Sylvia sitting up in the bed, staring down at me with wide eyes. She then spoke to me in a clear voice. I'm not alone. With that, she laid back down, closed her eyes, and went to sleep. I told Sylvia about it the next morning and she had no recollection of that having happened at all. The next night I woke up at 3 o'clock a.m. to find Sylvia sitting in our rocking chair in the corner of the room. She was slowly rocking back and forth while staring at me. 
She held the most devious smile while doing so. Sylvia? She didn't respond. She just kept rocking and staring at me with that sadistic grin. It was several moments later when her expression transitioned to a blank state, and she rose, walked slowly to our bed, and then slid under the covers and went to sleep. As usual, Sylvia had no memory of this happening, and was beginning to get concerned about these episodes herself. I made an appointment with a sleep specialist who was on staff at the university in town, but he had a full schedule for over a month, so until then, we just had to keep dealing with Sylvia's bizarre sleeping behavior. And it continued to get worse. One night, I woke up to the feeling of something crawling through my hair. My eyes shot open and Sylvia's face was close to mine. It was as though she were studying my skin while she ran her fingers through my hair. Sylvia, what are you doing? Sylvia moved her face closer and whispered something in my ear that gives me chills to this day. Sylvia is not here. Again, Sylvia didn't remember anything, but she did admit to having a reoccurring nightmare of multiple hands grabbing her nightgown and pulling her deep down under the ground. Although Sylvia was sleeping through the night, she said she felt tired when she woke up, and I could see the physical strain on her body. She was getting dark circles under her eyes, and her skin was growing pale. I also noticed that a depression was sweeping over her. She was no longer her happy, jolly self. She was lethargic and seemed sad and negative. It was as though the normal positive energy she exuded was slowly being drained from her. I decided to set up a video camera in our bedroom. I wanted to start recording these nightly episodes for the sleeping expert to examine when we were finally able to see him. I was glad I did because something particularly bizarre happened that very night. Once again, I woke up to Sylvia mumbling. I looked over at the clock. It was 3 o'clock a.m. What was unusual about Sylvia's mumbling on this night was that it wasn't a jumbled mess of incoherent mumbles. Rather, it was a rhythmic, repetitive mumble. I sat up in bed and listened to her for several minutes before I realized that she wasn't mumbling at all. She was repeating a phrase over and over in a different language. Mors ad apidulum tun venet. Mors ad apidulum tun venet. Mors ad apidulum tun venet. I wasn't positive, but I thought it was Latin. And for the record, Sylvia does not speak any language other than English. I played poker on Saturday nights with a professor from the university named Phil. I was pretty sure he was familiar with the Latin language, so I brought him the recording. He listened to it multiple times, and then looked up at me with a concerned expression. It's Latin, that is for sure. Well, what is she saying? He paused and let out a deep breath. 
That's the alarming part. He looked at me seriously as he translated the phrase she kept repeating. Death will come to your little town. Phil was quite curious about Sylvia's sleeping disorder, and I explained everything that had happened in detail. He began asking me several questions as he attempted to come up with a theory. Did anything change in your or Sylvia's life prior to these episodes occurring? I nodded, yes, we moved into our new house. He rubbed his chin as he thought. I doubt that's a coincidence. I had already thought of that, but brushed it off as unlikely. Weird things like this happening in a new home usually occur when someone moves into an old, creepy house with a morbid past. But our new home really was new. It had just been built. No one had ever lived there before. It couldn't be haunted or possessed or anything such as that. Could it? Is there anything else other than Sylvia's behavior that you notice when these episodes occur? I started shaking my head, but then spoke up when I remembered. I've noticed that her sleeping issues are occurring at around 3 o'clock a.m. I've woken up at that exact time on several different occasions. Phil suggested we spend the weekend in a hotel away from town to see if that made any improvement in Sylvia's condition, so we did. We stayed at a nice little hotel that was half an hour away. We made a mini vacation of it. We went out to eat every day, saw a movie one night, and a stand-up comedy show another night. And we slept. Sylvia instantly went back to sleeping like the dead. And I slept great too. I woke up a few times during the night, but it was never anywhere near 3 o'clock. Sylvia's dark circles under her eyes diminished, and she immediately got some of her color back. She was lively and cheerful once again. Neither of us admitted it openly, but it was obvious that we were dreading going back to the house. But we did, and looking back, that was a mistake. The first night back we went to bed and we both fell asleep quickly, but I was awakened that night by the soft sound of a little girl laughing. I slowly opened my dry eyes and gazed at the digital clock on my nightstand. 3 o'clock a.m. I rubbed my eyes and gradually opened them to a horrific scene in front of me. Sylvia was standing at the foot of the bed and was giggling like a schoolgirl. In one hand she was holding a book of matches. In the other she held a bottle of lighter fluid and was squirting streams of the flammable liquid all over the very sheets that covered me. I managed to jump from the bed and tackle Sylvia before she had a chance to light the match. We never slept in that house again. We spent the next month in a hotel, moved all of our belongings to a storage facility, and put the house up for sale. Phil called me shortly after and asked if I'd join him for lunch. He said he did some digging and had some interesting information he wanted to share with me. He told me that the lot our house had been built on used to be where an ancient church once stood. Legend has it, that was the location priests did exorcisms on people 
they suspected of being possessed. The creepiest aspect of the story was the time the exorcisms always began. 3 o'clock a.m. We had no problem selling the house. We moved to a nice little village approximately 20 minutes away. Six months later, we found out tragic news about the married couple that had bought the house from us. One night, at approximately 3 o'clock a.m., the wife stabbed her husband to death in their bed. Fragments of Fright, the complete series, is now available. All five volumes of the international best-selling series bundled together into one convenient, horrifying collection. Go to Amazon and search for Fragments of Fright, complete series, or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. The Axe Murderer's House On October 13, 1989, a man named Gray Davis killed his wife and two children with an axe in his three-story Queen Anne-style house. In its heyday, the house likely held a luxurious ambience with its decorative slate roof, fancy ridge boards, and Corinthian columns. Nowadays, the tattered and time-worn structure is nothing short of frightening to onlookers. Evidently, Gray Davis had a history of mental illness and had attempted suicide multiple times earlier in his life. He married young and had two children. Both were boys, one year apart. The boys were seven and eight years old when Gray butchered them. Gray was seeing a psychiatrist who claimed that Gray had an increasingly nasty temper and displayed violent behavior. In his last visit with his psychiatrist, Gray complained that his phone was ringing constantly and was driving him insane. Before he left the psychiatrist's office, he swore that if anyone called him that night, he was going to, quote, kill everyone. The psychiatrist alerted authorities, but it was too late. Phone records show that the Davises received three different phone calls within the span of an hour that night. His psychiatrist surmised that the ringing drove Gray over the edge. He buried an axe in his wife's head, and then turned his attention to his two boys, whom he chopped to bits. He then threw himself off of the top floor balcony and fell to his death. No one has lived in the house since that fateful day in 1989. My name is Del Grady. I recently bought the house for 
I outbid the city government who wanted to demolish it and turn the land into a parking lot. My plan was to restore the colossal estate to its former glory and reopen it as a bed and breakfast. Historically, bed and breakfasts that have a morbid past do well. Quite well. And that was my primary motivation in purchasing the home. I estimated the restoration to take eight months, with the grand opening to take place within two months after completion. From a marketing standpoint, I wanted people to know about this project from the get-go, so I came up with a brilliant publicity stunt. I offered $5,000 to anyone who could stay in the old haunted house for more than one hour on the anniversary of the murders. Now, I had no proof that the house was haunted. No one had lived in the house since the massacre took place, but I wanted to create a legend, and this was the start. The house was old and decomposing in spots. It was loud. There was a lot of natural creaks and squeaks as the foundation continued to decay. Every little bang and bump the participants in the contest might hear and report would help to create the haunted culture. I had over 500 people apply to be participants in the One Hour in an Axe Murderer's House for $1,000 promotion. I randomly chose three lucky contestants. The amount of publicity my spooky contest created was beyond my wildest dreams. Newspapers and news outlets all over the country and even around the world covered the story. The $15,000 I was going to have to pay the three fortunate winners was an absolute bargain in relation to the kind of press and advertising I was getting out of it. But then, something unexpected happened. None of the contestants were able to remain in the house for the full hour to collect the prize money. The way it was supposed to go down was simple. One contestant would enter the house, and I'd lock the doors behind them. The house has no electricity, so their lone light source would be a provided flashlight. The only way they'd be able to get out was if they stayed the full hour, at which time I'd unlock the door and release them. If they couldn't make it the full hour, they had the option of tapping out, thus forfeiting the prize money. Of course, I assumed all three contestants would last the full hour for $5,000. And when they did so, I had it set up for them to do an interview about the ghostly encounters they had, and then I'd hand over the prize money. The big risk on my part was that the contestants would come out and say that nothing unusual happened at all. I had my fingers crossed that wouldn't be the case. The best case scenario for me was for all the natural sounds of the house decomposing to spook them all enough for them to claim they had ghostly encounters, thus manifesting the idea that the house was indeed haunted. The first contestant was a young man named Jim Cates, a sturdy-built jock in his early 20s with short blonde hair. He was extremely confident, and I feared that he wasn't the type that would scare easily. At 7 o'clock p.m., 
He entered the decaying structure, and I locked the door behind him. Five minutes later, he called me, screaming in terror to let him out of the house. After releasing him from the house, it took him over ten minutes to calm down enough to do an interview. The following is the recording of the interview. What has you so shook up? What, what happened inside the house? Oh man, that, that place is huge and, and, and it's so dark. I've never seen that kind of darkness before, you know, dude? And, 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 and nobody told me that the house hadn't been touched since the murders took place. The furniture is all still in there. That phone that drove the guy mad, it's sitting on the table. And there's dried blood on the walls. It's crazy. Did you experience any paranormal activity in the house? Oh, immediately. I wasn't in the house more than a minute when I heard someone walking around upstairs, stomping. They were stomping around, like, like they were angry. And then I shined my flashlight upstairs toward the sound and I saw a door swing open. That was it for me. That's when I called and quit. I, I've never been so scared in my life. The second contestant was a woman named Chris Walters, a 31-year-old woman who had vast experience with various paranormal investigative teams. Chris planned on using the hour to do a paranormal investigation throughout the house. She claimed she would have done this for free and that the $5,000 was nothing more than a bonus. Chris lasted 34 minutes before demanding to be freed from the house. This is the interview Chris did upon exiting the axe murderer's house. Can you tell us what happened in there? I, I've been doing paranormal investigations for years. I've never experienced anything like this. Can you share the details of your experience? Oh, well... My goal was to walk through the entire house and see if I felt anything paranormal through any of my five senses. I was in there for less than five minutes when I heard something loud coming from upstairs. It sounded like someone pushing heavy furniture. So, being a paranormal investigator, I, I did what came natural. I investigated. I went upstairs. What, what happened when you got upstairs? I was aware of the experience the previous contestant had. He said he saw a door swing open. Well, there was only one door open out of all the rooms upstairs, so I entered the room. Uh, what did you see when you entered the room? Bedroom furniture. It was all messy and out of order, as if someone had been pushing it around randomly. I, I was deep within the room when the door slammed shut behind me. I kept my poise. I assumed the entity in question was trying to evoke a reaction from me, but I didn't want to give them the satisfaction, so I remained calm. And what happened then? <sighs> I, I heard someone knocking on the other side of the door, and then I heard crying. It sounded like a young boy. Again, being a professional... I wasn't alarmed. I've heard strange things before, so rather than showing fear, I approached the door and tried to open it, but it wouldn't open. 
The doorknob wouldn't even turn. I, I tried my best to get that door open, but it wouldn't budge. As I was shaking the door, I felt someone run their fingers through my hair. I turned around and nobody was there. Then I felt it again. But this time they grabbed my hair and jerked it. I lost my cool when I saw the shadow on the wall. It was the shadow of a man holding an axe. And what did you do then? Oh, I screamed. And then the door behind me flung open. I ran down the stairs and I called Mr. Grady. That, that was it. The final contestant was Bert Vidalia, a non-believer in ghosts. To him, this was easy money. In his mind, anything odd he heard or experienced was natural phenomena and nothing to be frightened of. He reached the 23-minute mark when he called me. He was screaming, and in the background, I could hear a phone ringing. Of course, there was no phone service in the house, so where the ringing was coming from, I don't know. After he let out a blood-curdling scream, the phone went dead. I broke the lock off the door and entered the home. Me, along with several news reporters, raced through the house. We found Bert Vidalia dead upstairs. He had a deep gash in his forehead, the kind of wound one might expect from an axe. Investigators ruled the death a freak accident. They suggest that Bert ran and tripped in the dark, causing him to fall and hit his head. While some people believe the freak accident story, most do not. Many people blame me. They say if I never held this contest to begin with, Bert Vidalia would be alive today. And they'd probably be correct. I have to live with that. Crazy conspiracy theorists like to suggest that I actually entered the house and murdered Bert for the publicity, which of course is preposterous. But most people believe that the ghost of Gray Davis simply claimed another victim that night. The Axe Murderer's Bed and Breakfast will be operational next month. Make your reservation soon. They're filling up fast. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store. Murder Mystery Greg My name is Greg. I'm a serial killer. It has been two years since I murdered my last victim. 
That's my introduction at the beginning of every group therapy meeting we have. I'm a permanent resident of the Paducah Valley Insane Asylum. Group therapy for serial killers is every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Today is Friday. There are two other members of the serial killer group, Peter and Bobby. They were standing next to the dead body of Dr. Brady, our group therapist. Someone had slit her throat, and they were both staring at me like I did it. But I didn't. I swear I didn't. I was the first one to step into the group room today, and I found the body of Dr. Brady. Although to me, she was Marsha. I loved her, and I think she loved me too. We had been having a secret affair for the past month. She was so smart, so beautiful, so... (sighs) perfect. And here I was, a serial killer she was treating. I had no chance. I knew that, but it didn't stop me from telling her how I felt. I think it was love. Being that I'm a sociopath, it's hard to say for sure, but... Where I used to be a cold, callous monster, lately I've been experiencing feelings more than ever. Mostly for Marsha. I fully expected her to reject me when I confessed my love for her, but she was a kind woman. I knew she'd let me down gently. I did not expect for her to pull me to her, kiss me fully on the mouth, and then demand that I make love to her on the spot. We had secret sexual encounters following each group therapy session. It has been amazing. My heart dropped when I found her dead body this morning. Who would do such a thing? I mean, it had to be one of the other group members. It had to be Peter or Bobby. They were both serial killers, too. It wouldn't be out of the ordinary for either of them to slide a sharp blade across a beautiful woman's throat. It had to be one of them. I I just wasn't sure which one. Peter was a sleazy serial killer. He targeted single women who lived alone. He'd break into their homes when they were away, rummage through their dirty clothes, sniff their used panties, and then masturbate into one of the used socks. After that, he'd wait for them to come home, strangle them, and cut off one of their index fingers to keep as a trophy. A real sicko that Peter was. However, he seemed to be making progress. He'd often cry with remorse when recounting his dastardly deeds. But once a serial killer, always a serial killer. Believe me, I know. You can push that darkness down deep but it's always there. Marsha was killed with a knife. She was not strangled, as was Peter's M.O. Peter was a strangler, but killing her with a knife would certainly throw the rest of us off his tracks. Still, I didn't think it was him. I thought it was Bobby. Bobby was a brutal serial killer. He'd kill anyone, and it was often impulsive. Look at him wrong, he'd kill you. Say the wrong thing, he'd kill you. Hell, you could just walk by the guy when he was in a killing mood and wind up his next victim. There was no rhyme or reason with Bobby. He was just a cold-blooded killer, and he was unapologetic about it. Unlike Peter, 
Bobby was not making progress in group therapy. He'd share his murders, but with a sick enjoyment, like someone reminiscing about good times with a loved one. If they let Bobby go today, he'd kill at least two people within 24 hours. That's just the kind of man Bobby was, a mean, dirty killer. He was my prime suspect, but uh, maybe it was Peter. The only way to be sure was to kill them both. I hadn't killed anyone in two years, but that streak was about to end. I had to exact revenge on the love of my life, Marsha. I grabbed the bloody murder weapon from the ground and started slashing. Murder Mystery Peter My name is Peter. Peter the pervert is the moniker the newspapers hung on me. I suppose they're correct. But I'm much better now. Not perfect, but improved. I was shocked when I walked into the room and found Greg kneeling next to a bloody Dr. Brady. He must have killed her. Kind of unusual for the lover boy killer. Yeah, that's Greg's nickname. See, Greg would date a girl. He'd be a loyal, loving boyfriend. The best boyfriend a girl could ever want. That is, until that first inevitable argument occurred. Whereas a sane person would work through the argument, Greg would just kill the woman, bury her in his backyard, and move on to a new girlfriend. So, even though it looked like Greg had committed this murder, I immediately had my doubts. Dr. Brady was not his girlfriend. She was my girlfriend. I snuck into the doctor's locker room one night. They changed there. Sometimes they'd shower. One night after showering, changing, and leaving for the night, Dr. Brady left her dirty clothes behind in a duffel bag. Once the coast was clear, I dug through the bag, found her panties, and began to sniff them. I was mortified when Dr. Brady returned to retrieve the duffel bag she forgot. I had been caught red-handed. But something happened that I wasn't expecting. Instead of Dr. Brady conveying an appalled expression, she smiled and said, Wouldn't you prefer to smell the real thing? We made sweet, wild love right there in the middle of the locker room. We'd meet there weekly for sexual rendezvous. She even told me she loved me. So since Marsha was my girlfriend, it didn't quite fit the lover boy Greg's M.O. That's when Bobby entered the room. He chuckled upon witnessing the grisly sight. Bobby was a big, brawny brute. This may have been his doing, but I wouldn't expect Bobby to kill someone, leave, and then come back. He was the kind of killer who liked to gloat over his victims. If he did this, he'd probably be dancing around with Marsha's dead body just to make sure everyone knew he was the one who did it. One of us had to have killed her and I knew it wasn't me, but the fact was, I was having sex with her, and if that got out, I'd be the prime suspect. Rather than try to find the true killer, I thought it best for the three of us to work together to hide the body so that none of us would be suspects. 
All I was going to ask was that I get to keep one of her fingers as a souvenir. I was trying to find the words to persuade my fellow serial killers to follow my plan when crazy lover boy Greg picked up the knife from the ground and started swinging the blade wildly at me and Bobby. Huh. All hell had officially broken loose. Murder Mystery Bobby The lover boy strikes again. I was about to applaud Greg for finally having the balls to kill again, but I could tell in his shocked rabbit-like eyes that he didn't kill Dr. Brady. That left Peter the perverted strangler, but that guy really got off on strangling chicks. Weird that he'd kill Dr. Brady with a knife. But it had to be one of them, because I knew it wasn't me. Look, I make no apologies for being what I am, and what I am is a killing machine. I'll kill anyone and everyone. I killed my mom, my brother, schoolmates, and countless strangers. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, girls, guys, whoever. I'm an equal opportunity murderer. But I didn't kill Dr. Brady. Not that I wouldn't have. As a matter of fact, I almost did once. I hate this stupid serial killer group therapy. It's infuriating and demeaning. Having to listen to wimps like Greg and Peter cry about the guilt they have for killing people is pathetic. They should be proud. This goddamn Dr. Brady has reduced two perfectly good serial killers into a couple of sobbing pussies. But I had their backs. I was going to make her pay for what she did. I was going to take that bitch out. I waited for her in one of the dark corridors. I knew the security guard's tendencies. I knew where and when I could kill if I got the urge, and oh, did I have the urge. When Dr. Brady turned the corner, I grabbed her by the throat and shoved her against the wall. As I squeezed my hand, I could feel her airway constrict, and I readied myself for that orgasmic moment the look of terror on my victim's face. To my shock, Dr. Brady held no such expression. Instead, she was smiling. I noticed that she was trying to say something, so I released my grip enough for her to speak. Her words surprised me. Why don't you show me what kind of a real man you are? She could tell I was confused, so she made it clear. Do it to me, you big idiot. So I did. I drilled her real good right there in the corridor, and we kept a healthy sexual relationship after that. It was kind of a bummer that the sex had to end, but I was proud of whichever one of these pansies killed her. Then Loverboy grabbed the knife and started swinging like a wild man. Peter held up his hand in a defensive posture and had his index finger lopped off in the process. <laughs> I chuckled at the irony. Loverboy then stabbed away at Peter's midsection until Peter dropped to the floor a bloody dead mess. Then Loverboy turned his aggression toward me, and he was better with that blade than I had expected. He faked like he was going to stab me in the body, but when I moved my arms low to defend the blow, he changed direction and slid the blade against my throat. I could see spurts of my own blood splashing against the white asylum walls with each beat of my heart. I knew I didn't have long to live, but there was no way I was going to let Loverboy survive. 
As Loverboy paused to admire his handiwork, I grabbed him by the throat. He slashed away at my wrist, but it was too late. I had him in my grasp, and I quickly crushed his windpipe. We both fell to the ground at the same time and eyed each other as we died. We were both fighting to hang on. Neither one of us wanted to be the first to give in. This was the last stand for both of us. Whoever died first, lost. <laughs> Loverboy Greg died a few seconds before I did. Murder Mystery Marsha I always had a thing for serial killers. I was fascinated with them as a little girl, and when I reached sexual maturity, it was serial killer tendencies that aroused me. It was after I graduated high school that I reached a crossroads. I could be a serial killer lackey and observe while the killers did their thing, or I could become a doctor and get to know the serial killers inside and out before I seduced them. I had been working at the Paducah Valley Insane Asylum for several years and had a stellar reputation. I was proud of the group therapy my serial killers were doing. Greg and Peter were truly remorseful for their actions, and for Bobby, speaking of his murders was an outlet for him. It probably kept him from killing others within the asylum. I was having sex with all of them, and it was amazing. I had reached my ultimate goal. I knew these three serial killers better than anyone else could ever imagine knowing them. I had reached the peak. The pinnacle. It was all downhill from here. And I couldn't live with that. When I decided to kill myself, I chose the serial killer's way. A blade to the throat. And what better place to perform my suicide than the very room where I met these killers? These wonderful, fascinating serial killers. I hope they handle my death well. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. The Mall After Dark Back in the 1980s, indoor shopping malls were all the craze, and our local mall was the cream of the crop, top of the charts, without question, the absolute best. It was a three-story mega mall with everything anyone could ever need. 
department stores, a grocery store, nice restaurants, greasy restaurants, a pet store, shoe stores, novelty stores, toy stores, bookstores, game stores, manicurists, a fitness center, a gigantic arcade, and all kinds of unique specialty shops. I was all about our local mall. There was nowhere else I wanted to be. It was my life. I was a genuine mall rat and I was proud of it. I would go there directly after school and do my homework in the food court while wolfing down a basket of french fries. Then I'd walk through the mall, do a little shopping, play some arcade games, and finally, reluctantly, head home. My parents were not thrilled about me spending so much time at the mall, to the point that they demanded I get a job after school. So I did. In the mall. I got a job at the Mystic Wonders Candle Shop. It was a candle shop that had every type of candle you could imagine, and then about a thousand more. They had walls of scented candles in every aroma and size you could think of. They had votive candles, pillar candles, tin candles, ceramic candles, beeswax candles, crackling wood wick candles, floating candles, tea light candles, multi-wick candles, taper candles, gel candles, and an array of novelty candles. There were candles in the shape of any animal you could name. They had candles carved into waterfalls, flowers, beehives, and pies. The featured candle in the store was an eight-foot-tall wax dragon with wicks running down its spine. The thing cost over 2,000 bucks. No one was ever going to buy it, which was fine with me. It felt like it was watching over the store, protecting the employees. The only downside to it was that I had to get on a ladder to dust it. Oh, and the smell of the store was nothing short of heavenly... It was a mixture of pine forest, an ocean breeze, a bakery, and a fruit stand. I loved that place. It was a pleasure to work there. It was a Thursday night, and business was particularly slow. I was the sole employee at the candle shop that night and had to work late to do inventory. I didn't mind, and my parents were out of town so I didn't have to worry about them hounding me for getting home late. It was going to be nice to have the entire house all to myself, and I had set the VCR to record the latest episode of Knott's Landing. My night was set. When I finally closed shop and pulled the metal security gate down over the entrance of the store, the mall was deserted. Every store was closed. The employees were gone and there wasn't a soul in sight. Void of life? The mall's vibe was completely different. I had always imagined having the entire mall to myself to be wondrous, but in reality, it was a little spooky. The clicking of my heels echoed throughout the darkened mall. I was more than halfway down the corridor that exited out the back of the mall where my car was parked when the outside door swung open and a burly mall security guard entered pushing a wheelbarrow. That was odd, but not odd enough to keep me from advancing toward the door. No, what brought me to a halt was the sight of the bloody hand dangling out of the wheelbarrow. The security guard paused to stuff the lifeless extremity back into the wheelbarrow, or he would have spotted me. 
I had mere seconds to make a decision. If I ran, he'd hear the clicking of my heels, so I quickly, carefully stepped out of my loud shoes, picked them up, and silently dashed down the side corridor. The corridor, unfortunately, didn't possess an exit. It was lined with payphones and had restrooms at the end of it. I thought of hiding in the women's room, but figured the security guard might check those bathrooms at night when he did rounds, and I'd have nowhere to hide if he checked the stalls. The only other option was the janitor's closet, so I darted into there. While the door was labeled janitor's closet, it was really more of a locker room slash break room. There were a bunch of lockers in there. Some employees hung their coats in there, especially during winter. Some changed in there. There was also a table area with vending machines, and various employees took their breaks in there. Believe it or not, there was even a huge shower in the corner of the room. It was mostly used by the janitor for changing mop water, but if someone wanted to take a shower in there, they could. I opened one of the lockers as quietly as I could, stepped inside, and latched the door behind me. I had a subtle fear that I may be locking myself in, but that fear took a major backseat to being murdered. I made a point to breathe shallow and listen closely. I could hear the squeak of the wheelbarrow's tire as it was being pushed down the main corridor of the mall. I was hoping to hear the squeak diminish gradually as the security guard wheeled it far away from this area, but the opposite happened. It got louder and louder, and suddenly... I heard the subtle whoosh of the janitor's closet door being pushed open. He was bringing the body into the very room I was hiding in. I was so glad I decided to get into the locker. I was positioned in a way that I could see through the vent slits at the top of the locker and watched on in horror as the security guard pushed the wheelbarrow to the back of the room and dumped the body into the shower. The body was that of a naked woman. She was covered in blood. The security guard left the room for a few minutes and then returned holding something large. I wasn't sure what it was until he pulled a string on it and it revved to life. It was a chainsaw. This crazy man was going to saw this woman to bits. I had seen this security guard multiple times before. He was hard to forget because of his size. He was big enough to be an NFL offensive lineman. He was usually working the night shift, so I passed him a time or two when I was leaving. But I distinctly remember him coming into the candle store one time and purchasing a scented candle. I recalled him asking for the strongest scent we had. I had recommended Lavender Fields. It was when he lowered the chainsaw and I saw the first splatter against the shower walls that I realized the security guard had put on a clear plastic raincoat of some sort to shield his clothes from the storm of blood. Oh, and there was blood. A lot of it. I could feel myself growing weak in the knees as he carved up the body. Even though the chainsaw was deafening, I could hear the chain ripping through the woman's flesh. Occasionally, the chain would holler and the security guard would shake violently as the chainsaw blade struck bone and then proceeded to rip through it. I witnessed huge chunks of flesh explode against the shower walls like fleshy spitwads. It seemed like forever before he finally turned the chainsaw off. 
That was the scariest time. Everything was deathly silent. If I made one tiny squeak, he'd rip the locker open and carve me up too. He bent down for quite some time after that. In that position it was hard for me to see, but I caught enough glimpses to get the gist of it. He was placing different body parts in individual garbage bags and tying them up. After that, he spent hours cleaning up the shower and surrounding area. He then slipped out of his blood-soaked raincoat, put it in a bag of its own, and tossed it in the wheelbarrow with the bagged body parts. I almost felt like an accessory when I saw the security guard place the lavender field-scented candle on a table near the shower and light it. He left after that. I didn't dare move. I figured there was a good likelihood he'd return to the janitor's closet for something. If I tried to leave, I ran the risk of walking right into him, and I didn't spend all that time in a stuffy locker watching a woman get shredded with a chainsaw to get caught by making a dumb move like that. So I stayed there. I cried silently and stayed inside that hot, suffocating locker until the next day. At some point, a janitor came in and got a mop and bucket, and then a store employee entered. I could hear them rattle a locker door open and then observe them purchase a bag of chips from a vending machine before they exited. It was only then that I felt safe leaving. I opened the locker and casually walked out of the room. I remember having a sneaking fear that I was going to slam right into that big security guard as I turned the corner, but I didn't. Instead, I was welcomed by the life of multiple shoppers strolling through the mall. I hurried out of the mall to my car and sped all the way home. My instinct was to call the police and tell them what happened, but then I got to thinking of what a huge story this was going to be. Hordes of people would be scared to shop in the mall ever again. Surely it would hurt businesses in the mall. It may even close it down permanently. I couldn't risk that. That was my home. My parents' home was my home away from home. The mall was my actual home. I couldn't run the risk of ruining my home. I kept my mouth shut and made sure never to work that late ever again. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash audiobooks.